Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this week's episode, I'm going to be looking at the women's suffrage movement in the United States with Professor Kimberly Hamlin. She's an award-winning historian, author, and professor specializing in the history of women, gender, and sex in the United States. And specifically, we're going to be looking at her latest book, which I've just read, Freethinker. Sex, Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner, which has just been released, and tells the fascinating story of a quote-unquote fallen woman who reinvented herself and became one of the most important uh, advocates for the congressional passage of the 19th Amendment and the highest-ranking woman in federal government. So we're going to talk about that book and that story, and one thing you'll hear me do in this interview is make modern parallels. So specifically we look at the relationship between um, atheism and women's rights, then and now. We also look at the relationship between ideas of evolution and women's rights then and now, and end with looking at the intersection of um, race and gender in American history. So I'm much more comfortable talking about them now, and that's just kind of where my um, head goes with the questions. So because of that, we cover quite a lot of ground in this, but I think it's all really interesting and important. So yeah, I hope you get as, as much out of it as I do. A little bit more on Professor Hamlin. Um, In addition to being a professor, she contributes to the Washington Post's Made in History column and other media, and regularly speaks to audiences across the country about women's and gender history. She's a member of the Organization of American Historians Distinguished Lecturer Bureau and the Ohio Humanities Council Speakers Bureau. Her research on women, gender, Science and Politics has been featured in various media outlets, including NPR, CBC, Radio, Vice, and QZ.com. And I've seen recently that she's done a few different podcasts on um, her latest book. So if you want more, if you're intrigued after this interview and you want more, I think she's definitely discussed that in a bunch of other places as well. Uh, Professor Hamlin has also written on the origins of the Miss America pageant, the history of the Girl Scouts, bearded ladies, women running for president, Darwin in America, and the Equal Rights Amendment. In addition, she's worked on several public history projects focused on women and contributed to various PBS documentaries, including Troop 1500. It was a real pleasure talking to Professor Hamlin, and I certainly learned a lot um, reading her book and interviewing her, and I hope you do too. Just before we get started, as always, um, we've had um, a bunch more people signing up on Patreon, so I just want to say a really big um, thank you to, um, to them. So, if you don't know, this podcast goes out for free and advertisement-free. We don't do any commercial advertisements at all. And all of the costs, compensation, whatever, are covered by uh, listeners. We're getting close. I've been trying for a while to get up to 50 patrons, so people who sponsor the show on whatever level. And we're at 47 now, so if three more of you could go to patreon.com stroke podcast and um, sponsor it for whatever amount. I've been suggesting $2, but whatever writes for you. That will be really, really um, super appreciated, and you'd be making the show possible. If you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to support the project, sharing it on your own social media or recommending it to friends are also great ways to help out. So, If you're enjoying the show but haven't sponsored yet, uh, check out our Patreon, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, for information on how to do that. And please do share the episode on your own social media. And as always, to anyone doing either of those two things, a really big thank you. I'm genuinely grateful. So, 
with my quick pitch for support out the way with. Let's get straight into it. This is my conversation, which I'm very happy to bring you, with Professor Kimberly Hamlin. So, I am joined today by Professor Kimberly Hamlin. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So, how do you think about um, the work you do? What are the things you like to read and write and uh, teach about? My favourite things to read, write and teach about are women, sex and politics. So, women's history, especially in the US, is my through line. But within that, I write mostly about women's rights activists. Um, and women who are advocating and seeking political change and or to engage in politics. Okay. And you have just written, it's upcoming, right? Um, it came out last week, March Oh, 7th. word. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> so you've just published. Congratulations. Yes. In the middle of the pandemic. It was wonderful timing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I hadn't even thought of that, but... <laughs> That makes sense. Um, So the book's called Free Thinker, Sex, Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner. Um, How did you come to this as a topic for a book? So I found Helen Hamilton Gardner when I was researching my first book, which is called From Eve to Evolution, Darwin, Science, and Women's Rights in Gilded Age America. And for that book, I was looking to see how women's rights activists interpreted evolutionary theory. Um, And because I had found in previous research that the Adam and Eve story was really constraining for women, you know, for generations, they came up against this Adam and Eve story as a as a a reason why they couldn't be equal to men. So I wondered how women embraced responded to evolutionary theory. And so as I was looking for women who engaged with science, I did things like go through old issues of Popular Science Monthly from the 1870s, 1880s. And as I was doing that, I came across this woman named Helen Hamilton Gardner who, um, despite not having been able to go to college herself and despite not being a neurologist, um, had the nerve to take on one of the nation's leading neurologists in the pages of Popular Science Monthly um, to to challenge his theories of the natural, I'm putting in air quotes, differences between men's and women's brains. So this guy, William Hammond, had argued that women, you know, shouldn't go to college, shouldn't pursue careers, shouldn't enter the professions because their brains were inferior to men's in 19 distinct ways. And he laid out all the ways that their brains weighed less, they had less discrete convolutions, they had less gray matter. And so Helen Hamilton Gardner, who is a woman I had never heard of, starts writing letters to the editor of Popular Science Monthly disputing his findings. So that's how I met her. She was just this brave um, bold woman in the 1880s who took on one of the nation's leading scientists and basically won. She disputed his claims and his research saying, you know, it was based on sexism and not actual research. I have like a purely like process question. Is like, what does it look like to write an autobiography? Because I haven't done a full book. I've had some like articles I've published and I do like longer solo podcasts and whatever. But like, to my mind, if I ever wrote anything, it would be like, political theory, moral philosophy, something like that. And I know what my process would be. I'd go to the literature, I'd make myself Mm -hmm. a reading list, and I'd sort of, like, sift everything through, work out what I'm trying to say, you know what I mean? I would have no idea how to write a biography. Like, what does that look like? Where do you go to for that, you know? It was so fun. So uh, I started, like, fantasizing about writing this book while writing my first book, because for my first book, I wrote a lot about like sexual selection theory and Darwin in America. So, you know, when I'd go to research in periodicals, like you can just imagine like the endless search results and Darwin is everywhere. So it was like, it was just so very overwhelming. So for this book, I was like, I'm just going to focus on this one woman and I'm going to follow her around. And it was so fun. I was part historian and part Magnum PI, you know, private investigator on the trail. So I, you know, did sort of the relevant research and literature like you would do for any academic project, but then I also followed her around. 
So her birth name is Chenoweth. So I like went to Chenoweth family reunions. I went in order to all the places that she ever lived in her life to the cities to try to get a sense of her feeling or of her surroundings and how she might've felt there, what it was like to live there. I went to all the houses she lived in and I did things like, um, went for her apartment in New York city. I didn't have a way to get in touch with the owner. I couldn't find like through property records where to send a letter, which is what I did other places. So she lived um, on West 82nd. So one morning I just went and got a coffee at like 845 and I paced the corner and waited for someone to come out the door. And then I said, oh, hi, <laughs> I'm writing a book about a woman who used to live here. And then, you know, through that, I got to you know see her apartment and just really get a feel for her life. And then I did other kinds of research, more like social history research, like looking at probate records, wills, census data, things like that to get a sense of her family and who were her people, what was her world like. So it was very fun to write about. Sounds like like such a different process. It was like, so different. <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, it was night and day from my first book, and I really had fun. I mean, it sounds to I, I, it sounds tough. It also sounds like quite intimidating. Like I feel like if someone said, "Hey, we'll give you this contract to write the moral philosophy of X," I'd be like. Cool. If someone said, we'll give you this contract to write, I feel like I would be a lot more apprehensive about taking that on, you know? I mean, I you're, maybe you're a braver soul than I, but... I had, I had much more fun writing this book. I think it's different, too. Like, I wouldn't want to write the second biography of somebody. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't want to write the biography of Darwin, for example, when there's been so many great biographies right. written. Now, is yours the first, like, full-length biography of her? Yes. Okay, yes. but so, but then on the other hand, you didn't have anything to like. But that's what I—that's what I liked. Right. I mean, when I started, it was a, a mystery. What will I find? Will I find a million things, or will I find nothing? You know what I mean? I didn't have a set course. She has some papers at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, um, and she has a lot of papers in other people's collections, like Woodrow Wilson. But she doesn't have like a huge archive where you just go sit there and say okay, bring me boxes one through seven today, and do-to-do, I'm going to go through these boxes. You know, it was very, like, hunting and pecking, traveling around. It was an adventure. Yeah, it's <laughs> not there... like if I want to write about LBJ, I just go right. to his presidential library exactly. and they have it all. There's nothing. Right. Okay. So, but I, I, I think it would be much harder to write the second or third biography of someone. Um, I would not like to do that. But writing the first, I have really enjoyed Mm. Mm. So, okay then, so that's the process. So, um, who was this woman? Let's start with, like, origins and um, the sort of fallen woman. I, I almost read the fallen woman part as, like, a, a plot writer would say, like, the instigating incident of exactly. her life. That is, a, you're exactly right. The fallen, being a fallen woman um, was, for sure, the the instigating incident in her life. So, I think you're asking, like, what, it is, what does it mean or what does it mean to be a fallen woman? Yeah, why don't, we, why don't we start with that? So, um, Helen Hamilton Gardner was not her real name. She was born Alice Chenoweth to this um, prominent leading family of Virginia. And the Civil War disrupts her whole life and her family's life. And she ends up um, deciding to become, she wants to become a self-supporting woman, which basically the only way you could do that if you're white and middle class is to be a teacher. So she becomes a teacher and she gets a job in Sandusky, Ohio, which, um, you know, borders Lake Erie in the north of Ohio. And she's killing it. You know, she's doing a great job. She becomes the youngest principal in Ohio history. She's 23, living on her own, supporting herself hundreds of miles from any of her surviving family. And she's beautiful and charming. And she comes um, to the attention of this guy, Charles Smart, who is the elected Ohio Commissioner of Common Schools, meaning public schools. So it's Charles Smart's job to like travel the state and check in on all the teachers and all of the public schools. And people start noticing, like, why is Charles Smart constantly in Sandusky? Like, we're not the biggest town in Ohio. We're not the capital. Why is the state school commissioner like always up in our business? And so come to find out, he's in Sandusky to visit this beautiful young principal who has the misfortune to be living in the same boarding house as the brother and sister-in-law of the guy who edits the local paper. So this really expedites the rumor mill and the local Sandusky paper 
starts printing about, you know, Commissioner Smart's visits and how he should be ashamed of himself for taking advantage of the young lady teacher. Soon the story spreads all throughout Ohio about their affair, and eventually the papers even publish her name, which at the time was Alice Chenoweth. So a fallen woman is a woman who has sex outside of marriage, usually as someone who has sex before marriage, which like a uh, corollary to that is being quote unquote ruined. You know, if you're not a virgin, who will marry you? And what, how could you possibly support yourself? The kind of the traditional story that's told in novels and cautionary tales is that if you dare to have sex before marriage, you know, no respectable man will marry you. And your only way that you'll support yourself will be through prostitution. So it's seen as like a, a express train to prostitution. And it's a huge term. It turns up everywhere, um, Every- all over the period. Like, yes. And I'm just thinking back to like, this is like high school literature for me, so don't quote me on it. But like, in a lot of like the British works yes. at the time, <laughs> by particularly by female authors, this is a yes. big concern for them. It's a very, yes. very real thing in the lives of women at the time. Exactly, because they they know that being married is like their only chance of economic survival. There's very few jobs or ways women can support themselves, so they had to be married. And they also know that, you know, and here I'm doing like fake quotes again, boys will be boys. So, you know, you like this guy and say he, you know, wants to sleep with you. It's your job to maintain this tenuous boundary of like, keep the guy coming back, but not, you know, lead him to sex because then he'll just walk away and marry someone else. So that's very mixed messages, tons of cautionary tales, tons of great fiction is written about this um, women's lack of choices. And that's precisely what, um, what led to Helen Hamilton Gardner, I think to her lifetime of reform is grappling with the fallout from her affair. And especially, I think she was really struggling to come to terms with the fact that men had such different um, expectations and consequences when it comes to sex outside of marriage. And that's really what she rejected and fought against. And that's um, what really drew me to her. It's just, you know, kind of the same question I had when I found her in Popular Science Monthly is what made her so bold? Like everyone in the world is telling you, you're a fallen woman, your life is over, like just slink away in shame and be done with it, (laughs) you know? She was like, no, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that. And with very few role models. So, so to, to like some, to sort of clarify the, the like consequences, you know, sex outside of marriage is frowned on, but the consequences of that fall disproportionately on the woman in the society exactly. of this period. Yeah. Like exactly. it's, it's her fault, even though, you know, if anyone has sort of done anything wrong here, and I mean, I, I don't know about you, I generally take the view that if it's safe and consensual, people can do whatever the heck they want. Right. <laughs> but, like, if there's anyone that's done wrong in this scenario, it would be um, this guy, because he's violated a commitment to his wife. Exactly. Right. I mean, who knows what the details of the marriage? Well, you probably right. know what the details of the marriage were. <laughs> but like, if there's anyone who's like morally blameworthy by m- sort of my contemporary liberal morality, it would be him. And she's just right. she's just done something which is neither morally praiseworthy or blameworthy. It's just right. something she's done. But people at the time did not see it like that. No, not at all. And the same was for prostitution. I mean, and that's what. That's what she starts, you know, writing about really early on is why is it that men get this, you know, pass to do whatever they want with prostitutes, with women before they're married, with women while they're married, and, you know, no one blinks an eye. And she really begins questioning that and writing about that. And that's, like you said, the motivating factor in her life of reform was her affair. Yeah. And so that's really what made it real. That's like the Spider-Man's murdered parents. Moment mm-hmm. in her life story. <laughs> yeah, that was it. She wanted to know why are men and women held to such different standards? It makes no rational sense. And then she also began to take the next step of like, what can I do to change this? Mm. Um, so she was very bold, very ahead of her time. And um, so after her name was published, she sort of goes missing in the historical record for many years. Um, I found a few traces and glimmers of her, but not a hundred percent certainty of what precisely she does during those years. And then she reemerges in New York City as a new woman with a new name and never for the rest of her life ever acknowledges 
um, her scandalous past or this affair. So in some ways, I feel sort of bad um, outing her <laughs> in this book because she worked so hard to keep it a secret, even as she fought you know, for the rights of women and railed against the sexual double standard. She never said, you know, I too am a fallen woman. Hmm. So the title of the book is Free Thinker. Mm-hmm. And that means something specific, right? Because at the time, we call it atheist, agnostic, whatever, like the label they often went under then was Free Thinker. And she was part of that. And like some of her early prominent supporters were part of that as well. Could you talk about like what the relationship at this time was between the sort of free-thinking religious skeptics and um, people concerned with women's rights? Like, what does that look like? That's a great question. Um, so it was sort of an unequal relationship for Gardner. I think what drew her to free thinkers and the free thought movement more broadly is the free thinkers were really basically among the only people talking openly about um, the sexual double standard and problems with patriarchal marriage in the 1870s, 1880s, when she was looking to make sense of her own predicament. So even most women's rights activists weren't really talking openly about sex or marriage. So if you wanted to find people who were, you'd have to go to the free thinkers. I mean, there are publications like The Truth Seeker and my personal favorite, Lucifer the Light Bearer, which was also also a pro-birth control periodical. Um, So there were some women's rights activists who were free thinkers, like most notably Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But Elizabeth Cady Stanton's um, agnosticism really served to distance her from the organized movement for women's rights which soon came to focus on suffrage. So as suffragists sought mainstream acceptability, as they sought to grow their ranks, they did not want to be associated with people like Helen Hamilton Gardner and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who went around saying things like the Bible is the root cause of women's oppression and marriage is basically legalized prostitution. So um, these more in our kind of current cosmology, these more left-leaning women were drawn to the free thinkers, but the suffrage movement as a whole was not. What about the free thinking movement? I, I, I imagine this was probably quite male-dominated then as yes. now. Yeah. Um, I assume they weren't to a man behind women's rights or... No, but there was more openness, um, I would say. So, and, and Helen Hamilton Gardner found a very warm, welcoming even though the movement was male-dominated. So particularly, she found a warm welcome from Robert Ingersoll, who was, you know, by far, hands down, the most popular speaker on the 19th century lecture lecture circuit, not just among free thinkers, but more broadly. And he was really the charismatic force behind the surge in popularity of um, free thinking in the late 19th century. And he um, also, he gave a lot of speeches, one famously called Men, Man, Woman, and Child, where he talked about how husbands should not lord over their wives and how wives are people too. So he he promoted women's rights in his own way. So at least relative to the views and opinions at the time, this was actually a very progressive, I guess we could say friendly group, this sort of um, surge we saw in free-thinking movements at that time. Exactly. Exactly. They welcomed women speakers when it was kind of questionable whether or not women speaking in public was acceptable or not. They were prominent free-thinking female speakers, including but not limited to um, Helen Hamilton Gardner or HHG, as I often call her and might soon start calling her today. Um, so HHG was one of the many popular speakers on the free thought lecture circuit. They welcomed women's contributions to their periodicals. HHG was elected an officer in the American Secular Union. So there was um, a much more welcoming, open, I think, to women's ideas and women's leadership. Though, of course, as you said, the movement was led by men and was male-dominated. So even as soon as she kind of finds a home among the free thinkers, HHG begins attacking or critiquing, pointing out the kind of like passive sexism of the movement. So, but she could do that. You know, she, she had a forum in Truth Seeker magazine where she could write and critique kind of the, um, she has a funny article talking about this one guy, Samuel Putnam and how he's like a man, we would call it mansplaining, <laughs> you know? So she calls him out for his mansplaining and she talks about, um, also the sort of sexist reviews that were published about her free thought speeches, how people would only write about how her hair looked and what she wore 
then so, she she writes a spoof one of like describing a male speaker that yes. way. She's like, he had very delicate hands. His hair was yes. cut like this. Yes. So she also was very funny, and she found that humor, you know, was a really effective way to point out and combat sexism. And she had a, a hospitable environment in the free thought movement to do all those things. So one of where my head went with that is, I mean, it seems to me that like feminism. The sort of free thought movement sort of comes in waves, right? There's yeah. surges of it, and then it sort of goes away, and there's surges again. Yeah. And I've been really interested in, you know, we had a sort of surge, what, 10, 12 years ago with, like, the New Atheist Movement became mm-hmm. quite big for a while. Um, and I was generally supportive of that, because this was, like, Bush-era Christian right. It's like, yeah, about time someone went after these guys in yeah. an uncompromising way. You know, and I think one of the processes I found both interesting and sort of disappointing is how the the sort of political valence of our our, our um, recent atheist surge has kind of gone from being like vaguely centre left to a lot of its key figures now spend most of their time not on atheism but on attacking what they see as the excesses of the social justice left. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it just made me think to, to sort of hear in this surge that we had in the, what period are we are, 1870s? Um, yes, 1870s, 1880s, yep. The, it was at, le- at least comparative to the society at the time, quite yeah. supportive. And then something went wrong and derailed our most recent one, um, and I don't know, I, do you, how do you process that analogy between the two? I think um, it's a much larger story with many shifts and turns and twists and turns, I should say, along the way over the past, you know, 120, 50 years in between. Um, but a couple of main differences I would point, are, point out are differences in thinking about women and sex. So I think the atheists of the or and agnostics of the 1870s and 1880s had more expansive kind of questioning ideas about marriage, about women, about sex. Um, and in part, I think that was due to the way they interpreted evolution, mm. which we can talk more about. Um, and I also think in terms of racial justice, that the and this is not across the board and certainly would not be true of all the free thinkers of the 1870s, 1880s, but. Many of them were kind of came of age and were, I don't want to say radicalized, but motivated by the abolition movement, by the Civil War, were defenders. They felt like, even though they're mostly white, um, were defenders of, you know, the Union, like Robert Ingersoll had been a, you know, Union hero, and he stumped around the country speaking for um, Republican reformers who wanted to enforce um, the Reconstruction Amendments wanted to uphold the voting rights and citizenship rights of after African-Americans after emancipation. So they were much more in the social justice um, left, I would say, of the 1870s, 1880s, with regard to issues of women and with regard to issues of race. Whereas that's not as obviously true of the group of people who yes. came together to yep. form the, the New Atheist movement. Why do you, do you have any thoughts on why the New Atheist movement sort of failed to attract women? And that's obviously a generalisation and a blanket statement. Obviously, there were many women who were involved in that movement and so mm-hmm. on. But, like, most of the leadership, the names that come to mind, like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher... You know, if you name the, like, main ten ones, you're probably going to name ten guys... And it seemed like the following they attracted, at least from what I could tell online, was sort of, not exclusively, but like mostly young white men. And there was sort of a moment where we sort of had the conversation about what can we do to get more women in? And then it just became, oh, screw it, we hate women and we're all anti-feminists now. (laughs) But like, before we got to that point of like, now we're just going to bang on about feminism all day. <laughs> what? Why do you think, you know, thinking about the intersection of, like, atheism and feminism, why do you think that movement didn't really seem to appeal to women, or not as much as it did to men? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily, I wouldn't say it was as much about the ideology, maybe, but the expression of the ideology, and like you said, the sensation of walking into meetings, <laughs> where you know, one of these is not like the other. I think that must have been, and probably is part of it. I think also, um, 
there was an alignment between the, the new atheists and a lot of issues, challenges, personnel in academic philosophy, which has similar issues. And I think there's also linkages with evolutionary psychology. So I think um, that's another kind of field where, of course, there are prominent women evolutionary psychologists, but the field as a whole tends to promote um, a different version of Darwinian theory than the free thinkers of the 1870s, 1880s, who talked about things like female choice and equitable distribution of domestic labor compared to more recent, uh, at least like the evolutionary psychologists who make headlines with arguments about like it being natural for men to rape or leave their appropriate aged wives for younger, more fertile wives, um, things like that. I think there's a, a constellation of similarity between the new atheists, the evolutionary psychologists, and the challenges that a lot of academic philosophy, you know, I don't want to say departments, but like organizations have had in recent years. Um, and I think more work needs to be done there to figure out why and precisely how. But I think those are some common denominators. That makes total sense to me. So in other words, just to say that, like in my own words, you've got both the problem of representation, i.e. all the leaders are men. You walk into a room, you're walking into a room full of men. That's going to be somewhat off-putting. But then you've also got problems of... Um, trying to find the right word. Problems of rhetoric and problems of yeah. culture. So yeah. you've got a culture in a lot of these departments which has sort of been casually accepting of like certain behaviors towards women that maybe it shouldn't have been and you've also got a sort of yeah. way that these people express themselves that's like quite male and often seems to take a lot of pleasure in saying <laughs> things about like sex or rape or gender yeah. roles that they know are going to be let's say provocative right yeah. and they seem to like the fact that they're being provocative yeah. on those issues Yes, I think that's, I think you said it very well. <laughs> um, and I think that was very different from the 1870s, 1880s free thinkers, um, where they, you know, welcomed critiques of marriage, talked about husbands being partners to their wives, talked about women's um, rights to their own bodies, although they mostly did not go so far as to talk about, um, you know, birth control that was beyond the pale, even for free thinkers. Um, and free, uh, the free thinkers also were sort of, um, related to the free lovers <laughs> 1870s and 1880s, but most free thinkers, like especially Ingersoll, did not want to be associated with the free lovers. And free lovers were a, um, a loosely related group who, you know, challenged various parts of marriage and advocated various alternatives to marriage. Some would be, you know, multiple partners, some would be no marriage. Um, but Ingersoll, for example, wanted nothing to do with the free lovers. They were often united, though, by their mutual hatred of censorship laws and by the fact that both free lovers and free thinkers were often pro uh, prosecuted for violating the Comstock laws and um, speech and kind of uh, um, outlawed any speech that was considered obscene. So that, that to me... Final point on this, and then we'll we'll move on to evolution. But that to me is just so much more in line with sort of the spirit of like what atheism ought to be about. Like it's not about just being opposed to religion for the sake of being a jerk about it. It's <laughs> about a willingness to question things that are assumed and common sense and ask is there actually reason and evidence to back this up? But if that's yeah. the spirit, that goes for saying, you know is the Garden of Eden literally true? Right. But it also goes for, like, do men and, you know, we, we assume men and women are in some way different, or they have different roles that are appropriate for them. We assume certain things about how we express ourselves sexually. And these yeah. are all also things that we can question or push around, yeah. you know? And so that seems, it seems like the true spirit of atheism should at least be open to the sorts of questions that feminism yeah. asks. It just hasn't gone that way, unfortunately, and, you know? And that was very much what drew, I think, both Ingersoll and Gardner to the free thought movement, asking for those questions. And so um, one of HHG's first books was called A Thoughtless Yes, which was a phrase she took from an Ingersoll speech where she basically said, like, how many common sense things do we just give a thoughtless yes to? Why 
then say, why do we say yes to this? Is this true? Is this the best way? What rational sense does it make? So I think you're precisely, that's a great description of what drew many people to atheism and agnosticism in the late 19th century, an openness to questions and a desire to rationally sort things out. <laughs> so an, um, an, 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 oh, not an analogy, a, a comparison you made in talking about that was um, between like how sort of high-profile atheists and sort of academics in that sphere have had a sort of certain cultural and rhetorical similarity with um, people who sort of invoke evolutionary biology quite mm-hmm. a lot. Could we start, before we get through to the present, could we start then, because... One of the things I've noticed about thought of this period is evolution plays a huge role in how people mm-hmm. are explaining their political theories. And yes. I've, done a, I've done a certain amount on how both libertarians and liberals and socialists are all using the language of evolution. Looking not at um, the role of specific political ideologies, but the role of gender, what's the relationship between claims that are being made about evolution and claims about women and women's rights and so on? What's what's the sort of in connection there in the period? So that's a great question, and that's the question I take up in my first book, From Eve to Evolution. And so the kind of the dominant story that's often told is that scientists and naturalists and doctors in the 1870s, 1880s used evolutionary claims to explain how and why women were naturally inferior to men, that there was a shift from making arguments based on Adam and Eve to making arguments based on evolution. So that's kind of the dominant story that's told. And what I looked up, what I looked at in my book was, well, what did evolutionary theory mean to women uh, who had been, you know, told for generations that they couldn't be equal because they were made from Adam's rib and because they ate fruit from the tree of knowledge and forced the couple's exile from Eden. So I just kind of had this open-ended question, like, I wonder if women heard about evolution and thought, oh my God, that's awesome. Like, we don't have to listen to this Eve business anymore. We can tell a new origin story. And so that's where I went looking. And that's precisely what I found. I found a constellation of you know, forward-thinking or progressive feminists who loved evolutionary theory, who really latched onto it as an alternative origin story. And by evolutionary theory, specifically Darwin's descent of man and theory of sexual selection. So not so much origin of species, but descent of man and sexual selection. And what these feminists and also men like Lester Frank Ward um, and Edward Bellamy really liked about sexual selection theory was Darwin's concept of female choice. So, um, that's it, you know, in a nutshell, the, the idea that in the animal kingdom, the males of the species have typically the more beautiful feathers, the you know, very prominent antlers, and the males display their beautiful traits, and the females choose among the males who they're going to mate with. Um, so women in, in in descent of man, Darwin says that in the among men, that men have arrested the power of choice from women. And so among humans, it's the females who are more ornate, who decorate themselves to parade the males and the males choose the mates. But basically these women, including also the men, Lester Frank Ward and Edward Bellamy say, well, if humans really are animals, then it's not natural for the men to be the choosers. If we really are part of the animal kingdom, then it's natural uh, for females to be the choosers, and we've really veered off the evolutionary path. So they argue for not just female choice of mates, but also female reproductive autonomy more broadly. Uh, also, when women looked to the animal kingdom, they began to see the wide variety of gender roles and reproductive practices. So if you look to the animal kingdom, the stay-at-home wife model is not natural. There's no animal precedent for the stay-at-home wife. So a lot of women began arguing that, you know, here like a prominent example is Charlotte Perkins Gilman begins arguing that it's counter-evolutionary for the for women to be economically dependent on men, that it's that it's um, derailing the evolutionary process by not letting women develop their full potential and also by kind of um, fostering like weak, weaker children when the mother is not fully developed. So women began to make all sorts of interesting arguments about domestic labor, about equality, about reproductive um, autonomy within this evolutionary framework. That's so interesting. Okay. What do you, <laughs> what do you make of it today? Because I, well, I mean, I have my takes, but like, 
Um, what do you make of people today who root a lot of their claims, which are also political claims, right, in um, a sort of set of claims about evolutionary biology made people X, Y, or Z, and that's sort of the um, explainer of various political, social, moral views that we have? Yeah, I think somewhere along the way, the people who have the, the biggest platform or make the um, claims about that that the media most often picks up on are from the field of evolutionary psychology, which I feel like for the most part, and this is a huge generalization and not true of all evolutionary psychologists at all, but for the most part, the, the, these studies kind of naturalize sexual difference and traditional gender norms in a way that I find disturbing that a lot of other like more feminist science studies scholars find problematic. Um, yeah, I always think... So here's my take. Um, and I haven't gone into this as much as you, so this is just an intuition that I have. Okay. But, I mean, go back to, like, bloody John Stuart Mill and the subjugation of women, where he says right. the fact that there's an observed difference doesn't tell you the underlying cause of that difference, right? Right. And I right. feel like that's just such a simple insight that can... Like, yeah, obviously men and women are different, right? On aggregate, yeah. right? Sure, if you do a study of, like, X variable, you can find a difference between men and women. Right. Black people and white people, or gay people and straight people, or whatever, right? But th that could be a sort of socialised behaviour. It could be something that's incentivized in a particular way. And yes, it could be biological, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact that you have a particular study which says... 20% of men do this thing, but only 5% of women, whatever it is. That, and then you sort of theorise why evolution would have selected it that right. way. Well, like, sure, that might be true, but you could come up with, like, a, a, a bunch of other different stories about social roles, about history and culture and whatever. And there's sort of this attitude that, like, their story's more true because it's scientific and theirs is objective, and our wishy-washy social justice warrior story talking about things like social constructs is just all a bunch of BS, essentially. And it's like, no, they're actually both on equal epistemic footing in that it's just some shit you've thought of to explain <laughs> this data that you have. It's just stories, that's it. Did that make sense? Right. Yeah, that, I mean, I more or less agree with what you're saying. I'm more drawn to the people who critique these evolutionary psychology theories that naturalize difference. So um, people like Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, or more recently, there's a, a friend of mine at Harvard, Sarah Richardson, who has this great gender science um, sex laboratory. She's a historian of science. So people who put these um, scientific studies of difference in a more broad historical cultural context. I'm drawn to those people and I'm drawn to stories that tell us about, you know, variation, about spectrums and not about binaries. Those are the things that I personally find more um, convincing. But yeah, there's also kind of this tendency, there's got to be a word for it, which is um, the desire of saying something not just because it's provocative, but because you know it has the potential to, like, hurt people's feelings, essentially, and taking <laughs> a sort of pleasure in it. So, look, I will say I've just dismissed an entire field here. I don't know anything about, like, hard <laughs> evolutionary science. And I'm sure it must be true at some level that, like, our moral attitudes are at least in some relationship with our genetics. That's got to be the case. Sure. Um, yeah. So I can grant that by just sort of but just all what i would just want to stress an epistemic humility like just because you see some data you know doesn't mean we really know what the correct story is to explain that data but then too there's a tendency i find a bit troubling where someone yeah fine you can do a study saying um women are, because of their biology, more sexually submissive, right? You can do that study. That is a question you can ask. But there seems to be a kind of glee with which they trumpet their findings <laughs> that it, it's just a bit of a jerk thing. Like, it's not that you can't talk about these things, right? 
It's that they, they seem to want to talk about them precisely because they know it's going to get a sort of reaction. And then they turn around and go, oh, you see how irrational and emotional these people on the other side are. And I don't know, I distrust the motives as much as the, the reasoning sometimes. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Another um, parallel, I think, is um, the seemingly endless desire to document sex differences in brains. Um, that's another area that, you know, HHG was really concerned about and active in. And I feel like every couple of years, there's a new headline that says like, aha, now we've discovered it precisely how women's and men's brains are different. And it seems like the question persists and each new, like, you know, brain imaging technology or different ways that we approach the study of the brain promises to reveal once and for all, you know, the ways that men's and women's brains are different. And it's, and I find that, I don't know, curious as a historian, because I see it, you know, each generation has its different brain, you know, has its own brain different story, depending on the methods they use to study the brain. But really, each generation says the same things over in a way that is not convincing to me. Um, the, so... <laughs> the analogy that really comes home to me there is I've talked about race and racism a certain amount on mm -hmm. um, the podcast, um, for instance, with your friend Angie Maxwell, right? Yeah. Um, and whenever I do, I get someone who wants to talk to me about the, the race and IQ data from Charles Murray every yeah. single time. And I've given my point of view on it, which is I think it's BS, and it's yeah. BS for the reasons that I just explained, is yes, you can observe a test score gap, but that, you know, there's a million variables that could go into that. And even doing a statistical study and controlling for certain things doesn't exhaust the range of, like, social and historical inputs that could go into right. that observed difference. So my position on this is very clear. If you can, if you can, sh we don't even know what the genetic correlates of intelligence are, you know? If you can find them, which we haven't, right. and then right. you can observe differences in different populations, then that's what would count as evidence. The fact that there's an observed difference in the social world does not count as evidence. Right. And I've just been really clear on that. And But it's the exact same... It, it seems to me like that repeating pattern you're describing. Yes. It's exactly. the exact same thing as, like, bloody phrenology or something, exactly. where we've measured exactly. skulls yep. in this way. Yep. And it proves this thing, that it just so happened we were really invested in believing all right. along. How right. fine <laughs> that the world turns out that people who look like me happen to have this genetic superiority isn't that nice you know exactly um but and i get you... i get confronted with this all the time whenever i talk about race people want to tell me but what you don't realize is this it's actually it's the brains yeah you know? it is and yeah i agree it's hogwash um and you know two books i really like on this are by the british science journalist angela saini i don't know if you know her work but she has one called inferior um and one called superior so these are recent books um that have come out in the past couple of years, and one examines the long, you know, scientific history of supposedly female inferiority, and the other e explores the long history of science, scientific ideas that um, promoted false premises of racial difference. And um, I really like those. I mean, she does a great job, I think, of teasing out precisely what you were saying that, you know, and what I was saying of, with regard to sex differences in brains, that every generation tries to tell this story that more or less attempts to prove the superiority of white men with different with whatever the scientific research is of that era. I just sort of like, uh, I feel torn here because I know what the other side's going to say here. And like, I don't think it holds weight, but I also don't think we're going to say anything here that would talk them out of it. So like what they're going to say is, you're scared of the truth, essentially. That, like, what we've just said is, like, we don't want there to be a brain difference. Therefore, you shouldn't ask the question. And they're going to say, ah, you know, we're, we're real men of science and you're just scared of hearing what's really out there. Now, I don't think that stands up, but then, like, I don't think there's anything we're really going to say that would remove that impression from people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I think there are some, you know, really interesting studies of brain difference and brain or brains in general, not necessarily foregrounding difference, but studies of brains. So there are ways to get at these questions, but I'm just skeptical of any studies that purport to show, aha, once and for all, now we know how, you know, men's and women's brains are different. And I don't, 
I think it's much more convincing to think about, like I said, variation spectrum, to think of humans as a much as a bigger, like heterogeneous group rather than as, you know, a binary. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But okay, so we, we did both gender and race there. That brings us on to the next topic, which is okay. the intersection of those two historically. Mm-hmm. So yeah. could you lock this in for me and talk about both sort of what the suffrage movement was and how it got started, but then also what was its relationship for good or ill with claims that, that were being made for suffrage of black Americans at the time? So that's a big question with many chapters. So I don't think in our time I'll go through every single chapter. Mm. I might start at the beginning and fast forward to the end. Okay. <laughs> so um, the first chapter is that the women's rights movement emerges and is part and parcel of the abolition movement. So in the 1830s, 1840s, women's rights emerges directly from the abolition movement. And for the first um, 20-ish years, the women's rights people are abolitionists and vice versa, and they're advocating what was called universal suffrage. They thought that once, you know, the slavery would be abolished, that African-American men and women together with white women would be enfranchised, would receive full citizenship, and it would be like a, you know, universal suffrage, one for all, all for one. This coalition breaks down um, after the Civil War, when the 14th and 15th Amendments are being debated, and the 14th Amendment includes the word race, I'm sorry, includes the words male, <laughs> includes the word male for the first time, and the 15th Amendment enfranchises black men, but not women. So this is the breakdown of that universal suffrage coalition. And then the suffragists, you know, splinter and one faction supports the 15th Amendment, even though it only pertains to men, the other faction says, you know, we're not going to support the 15th Amendment unless it also includes women. So that's in the 1870s. And then, um, again, there's much more to be said about that and much more that has been said about that. But uh, when we get to the 20th century and the 1910s, when the 19th Amendment is being debated in Congress, then again, you see these the, the shadow and the specter of the 15th Amendment front and center all over again. So the Congress doesn't really start debating the 19th Amendment seriously until 1918 in January. That's the first time the House um, passes the 19th Amendment. And throughout 1918-1919, the debates about the 19th Amendment really center on questions of race and racism in the 15th Amendment. So earlier objections to women voted had been things like, and by earlier I mean 19th century, Early objections to women voting had been things like, you know, women are fundamentally irrational. Women can't be trusted with the vote. If women vote, it'll destroy the family. Who will take care of the kids? Men and women naturally belong in different spheres. But by the 19 teens, you know, enough women had gone to college, enough women had careers that you couldn't really like logically make claims like that anymore. So the central issue now is race and what congressmen from the North, South and West, it's not just a Southern issue, but what congressmen are concerned about is the growth of the black electorate. So they're concerned that not only will the 19th Amendment enfranchise black women, but that it'll somehow compel Congress to enforce the 15th Amendment, granting voting rights to black men. Congress had not enforced since 1877. So that's the real crux of the debate about the 19th Amendment in Congress in the 10s is is the question of black people voting. And do most of the women's suffrage organizations take that side or do they essentially jettison the the do they essentially just say yeah we're here for white women essentially? So they run the numbers and realize that to, you know, get an amendment through Congress, you need two-thirds passage, and then you'll need three-fourths of the states to ratify. So they know they need some Southern support mm-hmm. for the federal amendment to go through. So the leaders of the white suffrage groups, which are at this point are the National American Woman Suffrage Association and the National Woman's Party, led by Alice Paul, they basically, you know, jettison the, well, not the two, they didn't necessarily even ever work closely with Black women, but they do not advocate for black women at all. And they just basically say to Congress, you know what, we don't care about the 15th Amendment. Just keep disfranchising black people in the South as you've done all along, but give us the 19th Amendment. So the dominant position within suffrage, the the first wave feminism, 
was this is a thing by and for white women. Yes. Yep. And um, you can also see this in bold relief after the ratification of the 19th Amendment, where black women leaders like Mary Church Terrell approached the League of Women Voters, which is what the National American Women's Suffrage Association became. And she approaches also the National Women's Party and she says, hey, you know, gosh, it's great that we work together to get the 19th Amendment ratified. It's really awesome that now white women and black women in the North can vote. But, you know, black women in the South are still disenfranchised because of the 15th Amendment. Can we work together now to get voting rights upheld in the South? And both um, the leaders of the white groups, you know, basically tell Mary Church Terrell and the other black women who approach them that this is not our issue. We're not going to work together to make sure that black women in the South can vote. We're moving on to other things. So it's not even as if they sort of strategically focused it on white women at first as a matter of getting it through. It's like even after they got it through, they, were still, they still weren't interested. Exactly. How long, did a- that, how long did that take to change? Was like was I mean, was it like all the way until the civil rights movement or even past it that like the main feminist groups in the country became interested in or is that even like modern we have to wait to modern intersectional feminism like I mean I think it's been a rocky path throughout and I think you could point to different you know, individuals who have different individual white leaders who have been more um, forthrightly championing the rights of women of color along with white women all along. But organizationally, this has been an issue, I would say, throughout. So, you know, in second wave feminism now, for example, was often critiqued as being mainly concerned with the issues of uh, professional and middle and upper class white women and not taking concerns of women of color as a priority. So I think it's it's been an ongoing issue. And even up until now, you know, the it was a big and it continues to be a big issue with regard to, you know, the women's marches, how those were planned, and the Me Too movement. Who does that speak for? Why was it, you know, that the in the early movements, in the early years or early months of Me Too, why were the voices of, you know, its founders like Tarana Burke less considered, less worthy of media attention than, you know, pretty white women who, you know, rearticulated them? So I think it's an ongoing pattern. So yeah, so how do you how do you view the like modern place we end up in? Because like, you know, the historical case, as you put it, seems pretty clear that this has to um to to put it mildly been um something that um feminism has not paid attention to historically, right? To put it at its mildest. Um and so it seems completely appropriate to me that there should be calls for a feminism that's more inclusive and a feminism that understands that progress made for women has been uneven across different groups, right? On the other, there's the tendency of, like, I'm quite embedded in, like, the social justice left. There has been a tendency to sort of start talking about feminism as a bad thing, to start talking about, like, corporate white feminism. And I know I know what they're driving at there. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think there is a sort of, like, we're a giant corporation who exploits our workers and we're awful people and we're probably quite racist, but we're going to do lip service to making sure that we have women on the board. And I get why that would would rankle people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen that. That's just real, right? Um, on the other hand, I sort of feel like feminism is a word that comes to us so heavily stigmatised anyway. Like, like a sort of rhetorical tradition that just writes it off as like... Um, sort of a window dressing over an oppressive capitalist hierarchy, which it can be used as, right? I'm not saying that's not real. Like, like the way that feminism has now become a dirty word both for the right and the social justice left gives me a tiny bit of unease, but I'm not sure how much that unease should count against the genuine, legitimate historical grievances of women who've been left out of feminism. Did that all make sense? I mean, there's a lot to unpack there in what you said. Um, 
I still very much am a proponent of feminism and think, like Belle Hook says, feminism is for everybody. And I think the, you know, most current iterations of intersectional feminism are our best chance yet by far to actually see lasting change um, in the ways that, you know, women of color and white women all along have been working towards. So I feel hopeful about the feminism of the future and of the present. Um, And I also think that one issue that we as feminists can really focus on right now, um, especially in 2020, is voting access and voting rights. So I think, you know, my book, Free Thinker, is time to coordinate or to um, to be out in 2020 because that's the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment and the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the 15th. But voting rights, I feel like, is really the issue of I mean, besides the global pandemic, yeah. <laughs> the, issue, the issue of our day, like that is something we can unite on and work towards um, across racial lines, across class divisions to see hopefully change uh, in the very near future. I think it's such an underrated fact of American politics that every time the Republicans get power, they essentially use it to shut out the votes of young people, black people and people who live in cities consistently across the board and there's any number of mechanisms from that from gerrymandering to the types of disenfranchisement that happen through our criminal justice system which of course disproportionately affects black people so on and so forth you go down the list and one frustration i have with contemporary philosophical liberalism is i think it's got itself into its head that like liberalism is like the referee of the game and everyone else like (laughs) competes within it and this sort of uh, constant, like, hand-wringing about the breakdown in civility and showing respect to the opposing side and so on, as if we all sort of agreed to the basic liberal framework, and then we can have reasonable disagreements about tax policy or you know, what have you within that. Right. And if you look at, like, one of them, apart from giving millionaires more money, the main thing the Republicans seem to want to do is to not let black people vote. And so, like, the partisan battle is a battle for those fundamental minimal liberal protections. And it always has been. You know, the party's positions have changed on race. But, like, from the history you're talking about to today, we've always debated who gets access to voting. Yes. You know, it's just a common through line. Yes. And that people often think that, you know, voting is somehow guaranteed... No. In the Constitution, but it's not. There's It spells out different ways you can not be disenfranchised, but it doesn't say everyone gets a vote. And I think this is now a really important time to be asking these questions and to be demanding universal voting rights that are accessible. And especially, you know, even I made that joke just a second ago about the pandemic, but this actually is a time where we might revisit, like, why not make it easier to vote? Why not make same day voting registration? Why can't we vote in a way that removes barriers, especially if we can't leave our houses, you know, why not use this as an opportunity to make voting accessible to everyone? Yeah, and I think that is unfortunately a partisan issue, and I'm not particularly saying the Democrats are even great on inclusion, but the Mm -hmm. Republicans are implacably against it. Yes. And we'll never never get it as long as they're in power, you know? Yes. And that, you know, the documents I found in my research for free thinker that were most surprising to me were the private letters between Helen Hamilton Gardner and members of Congress about voting rights and the things that they said about why they opposed the 19th Amendment and the lengths that they would go to to keep Black people from the polls. That has been an unfortunate constant in American history, and I hope that these discussions we're having in 2020 uh, will lead to serious, long-lasting change. I am enthused by, I mean, they didn't win, but, like, um, Warren and Sanders and so on did actually talk about this a lot more. Yes. Which is unusual, actually. Um, Like, Democrats have not focused on these issues at all, and Republicans have focused on them a lot, just in in a negative way. We haven't taken it... As seriously as I think we should, as as, as, as seriously we, as we have an obligation to do, indeed. Well, I have some hope that yeah. Biden will pick Stacey Abrams as his running mate. And I feel like Stacey Abrams has been such a you know, amazing proponent and advocate for voting rights. And I think with her on the ticket, that will really 
raise the level of this conversation. She'd be my number yep. one pick, but I think yeah, it, I not. think it'll be Harris is who he's going to go do. for. Okay. Just just a hunch. Um, but I think they want someone who already has strong. Ne- they, they've already committed yep. to a woman. I think right. they want a black woman. Um, but I think they want someone who has very high name recognition and they can sell mm-hmm. to the public as credibly commander in chief from day one. Mm-hmm. So I think if you add all that up, it's Kamala Harris. But it, what, what do I know, right? We'll reconvene in November and see, right, Harrison? Yeah. <laughs> or before then when it's announced. But yeah, I think either would be great. And I hope that it provides an opportunity to have these discussions about voting access. Yeah, and even if she's not VP, we give a strong yes. uh, role <laughs> to that. Because she was straight yeah. cheated out of that election, right, Abrams? Yes, yes. Like, in what yep. universe does one of the candidates also get to decide the rules of voting? <laughs> um, yeah. Alright, so I think that's a nice end point with the the yeah. importance of uh, voting rights. Um, the book's already out. I made that mistake earlier. Um, I assume listeners can find that on Amazon, online, find booksellers everywhere. Um, yes. Is there anywhere else you'd like to send them? A website, a Twitter, anything like that? Yes, you can read more about my research in Helen Hamilton Gardner at KimberlyHamlin.com. And I'm I'm on Twitter at Professor Hamlin. All right, Professor, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun talking with you. Thank you. Thank you.